This is Dr. Todd May for the podcast series, Living Philosophy, brought to you by philosophy2.com. Living Philosophy explores the way people have brought philosophy to life through significant experiences, changes, practices, and life-affirming realizations. My guest for this episode is the Women's Spiritual Empowerment Mentor, Dr. Kate Thomas. Kate's clientele consists of women and non-binary people hoping to seriously improve their quality of life and view of problems ranging from socioeconomic and political adversity to spiritual and mental health problems. Kate is a former academic with a PhD in philosophical theology from Oxford University and is author of many books, including a best-selling guide on chakra crystals. Welcome to Living Philosophy, Kate. It is a pleasure to have you on our podcast. Thank you so much, Todd. I, I feel very much more impressive when you introduce me than normal, so thank you. <laughs> I hope that doesn't put undue pressure on you. <laughs> no, no, I'm good. <laughs> so the title of Women's Spiritual Empowerment Mentor is intriguing, but before moving on to that, I was wondering how you came into mentoring more generally, if it was something towards which you felt naturally inclined, or did something in uh, your life experience spark that interest in uh, trying to help others? I started work, I suppose, doing what I'm doing now in a different format about 20 years ago. So for the last, well, 22 years, I've worked as a, as a psychic. Um, throughout my PhD, I worked as a psychic, but before, before then, I was predominantly doing tarot readings. And what would happen is in those tarot readings, I would, my intention would be to get as much information and guidance for the person that was in front of me as possible. And I would be able to get quite a lot, a lot of that. But what I found consistently was that even at the end of the reading, however much guidance, information there was, it was almost like I was abandoning that person. It felt to me like they needed something more than just a sort of single burst of knowledge or single burst of guidance and this niggling feeling you know lasted for a really long time and so though throughout my my career and the growth of my business as as an intuitive as a psychic it never really went away and so I tried to think of different ways in which I could um you know support particularly women the clients of mine that I that I had that wasn't wasn't I suppose pathological in this dynamic is often set up the therapeutic dynamic dynamic where there is this power dynamic and a, and a sort of reliance on the therapist and I didn't want to do that in in my what do I want to call it my industry in the industry of of like spiritual guidance and psychic help that's a huge way in which that that dynamic is sort of uh, very present it's a huge way in which that industry is is structured really and I was really resistant to that I didn't want to do it and so it occurred to me, actually, it would make sense that instead of just offering, you know, insights or 45 minutes of my time or an hour of my time every two or three months, that it would be better to teach these women the skills that I have, the practices, the tools that I have, so that they don't need to be reliant on anyone. And so that's really how it began is, is I, I mean, it's the classic thing of like, teach a woman to fish versus giving her a fish. So that was that was my intention. And yes it sort of blossomed blossomed from from that really i'm very fortunate and uh have a, an incredible collection of clients that i really love and did have an incredible collection of clients that i really loved just when i was just working as a psychic because as i said in 20 years and so when i started to initially offer 
uh, I created a program, a, a six month program. When I initially, initially offered that, it was very, very successful. Like a lot of people applied, a lot of people wanted to, to take part. And so um, I've now got to the point where 90% of my work now is focused on that mentoring like I just you know describe it as I've described myself as the women's spiritual empowerment mentor and it's a bit wordy and I don't like the term particularly but it is the best I can find to describe what it is that I do yes almost all of my work now is it's not readings I do offer a couple of readings a month you know two or three a month but most of my time is now focused on um, the creation of and the support of uh, this the program, which is called the Spiritual Life Upgrade, that I that I work with um, women to teach them these practices. Really, I wanted to go back to some some of your earlier work, and I think during this time of pandemic, a lot of our audience members um, have had a chance to reflect on their own careers and jobs. And if one's lucky, one's in what's called a vocation, where you actually feel like a calling. Or some kind of a natural affinity to to do what you're doing and i think what the pandemic's allowed is for us to realize in a lot of, for a lot of us the structures or industries or institutions or the models in which we're working don't quite fit what we think we ought to be doing and it sounds like especially in your earlier work as a psychic there was to put it crassly there was one kind of business model and it seems i would i would imagine a lot of clientele want something to be revealed to them about the future, that is a prediction about some kind of concern they have. And it sounds like that, okay, I could do this and I could probably make a lot of money from it, but it's not really helping them. And I'm, in, I'm interested in these kinds of ways of trying to understand the ways our, our, our personal narratives unfold. So as it were, there's a kind of hermeneutical understanding of these kinds of traditional ways of looking at one's life. And for audience members, um, for those who don't understand hermeneutics, I, I can't really explain it uh, in, a, in a few sentences, but it's it's basically about concerns about how to interpret different messages, whether they're textual or, or oral. And if you want, there is on my website, there is a, a short vlog on what hermeneutics is about. Um, going back to, to Kate's story, um, so it sounds like there was, there was a motivation to try and, was, was it, not just personal, was there a larger vision of trying to change this, the model of the, the industry you're talking about? Was that a conscious effort or was it just something, a personal desire or quest to just be a bit more engaged with the people you're working with? I think, I think both. For, for me, I first thing to say is absolutely never in my, in, at any point in my life did I decide oh I want to be a psychic that's what I want to do and a lot of people I find out recently you know not even recently like over the last 20 years I found so many people that would desperately love to be it like that is their dream they want to be a psychic they they think they want to be a psychic they want to be a tarot reader or a reader or whatever um for me it was the absolute opposite like absolutely not I avoided and resisted the work that I have done for such a long time now for, for, for as long as imaginable um, and and without sort of going into the boringness of that story. Um, I grew up in an extremely um, rationalist, materialist household, you know, this sort of spiritual experience or any sort of um, non-material um, phenomena was just not recognised. It certainly wasn't valued. Um, and so my entire upbringing, my, my whole existence up to the age of, I think, you know, realistically 16, 17 was just vehemently in denial about the experiences 
I was having, like the actual, you know, existence that I was living and the phenomena that I was in, you know, whether I liked it or not was engaged with, I, I was straight denial of, and, and that just wasn't sustainable. And so that's the first thing to say, I, I never wanted to be a psychic. And yet I had this capacity to gain access to extra information. That's the best way of putting it, that most people didn't. And I had lots of th theories as to why that might be, but I have no real knowledge of that, of why that might be. And so when I, I, said, I guess, started work as a psychic, it was under extreme duress and desperate need for money, as, by the way, is most of the, the, for most people, why do any of us work? We work because we have to work. And it was no exception for me. So I entered a, a, an industry that I resented, didn't know anything about other than like thought was mainly full of people that were not ethical. Um, I had a whole collection of assumptions, most of which I think were quite accurate, by the way, if not entirely, you know, but not entirely. And so my desire to think of a different way of working with my clients absolutely was motivated by a desire to change, you know, the, the, the standard business model that, that still exists in, in this sort of industry, but was also mainly, I just, I, needed to think of a different way of working for my own physical health and my own mental health because when you do the work that I do and certainly that I did especially when talking about one-to-one -one readings with people it is utterly absolutely exhausting and so the time for money um, exchange is a very very difficult one to get right with the nature of this work and so partly I wanted to support my clients in a better way. And this obviously wasn't working well for them because they were keeping having to come back three months later, four months later. And, you know, that I thought was problematic, but also myself in order to make enough money to pay my rent and my bills and not live well, like, let me be clear, not live well. I was having to work, you know, like eight, nine hours, one-to-one -one sessions a day, six, seven days a week, which it's very difficult to describe the nature of psychic work, um, particularly to, to people that are probably inclined to think that it's not real. <laughs> I can tell you it's real. But also I can say that it's a bit like being interviewed in front of four or five people that you can't really see and being recorded at the same time and constantly judged for a full hour and you've got nine of those a day. So it is utterly exhausting, completely draining and not sustainable as, a, as, a, as, a, as any form of business model or labor. It's just terrible. It's a terrible system. So yes, that, that uh, definitely it was a desire to change the, 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 the industry standard. But since then I've, you know, gone on to desiring to change much more things about the industry. The, the new age, the spiritual development world is, is an absolute shit show am i allowed to say shit show on your podcast or? yes um, <laughs> we prefer the more anglo shite oh shite yes a fucking load of shite um with 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 a lot of you know many really wonderful exceptions i'm not i'm not i don't want to be like you know shitting on every one of my colleagues but um that's not the case at all but but it is a, an industry that the spiritual new age industry is for a start an industry and it is dominated by I think a sort of love and light fascism which I just is whitewashed 
straight up racist it's horrific so yes there's lots of things that need to change about that industry and, and <laughs> can were, i answer your question <laughs> you were quite successful in, on this previous work you had a clientele from big fortune 500 companies as i understand wanting to know more about things about their own market i suppose and their business viability you had um uh, hollywood stars or celebrities wanting to have consultation with you and the move to uh, women, in particular non-binary people, then is a way of, I suppose, on, on the on the surface of it, it looks like helping those who actually really need help. Uh, right. They're not these Fortune 500 company uh, executives who are quite well off anyway, and they may live a stressful life, but it's it's a different kind of stress, as it were. And so, can you say more about what the role of women's spiritual empowerment mentor provides? Is it is it providing them with a way of understanding how their life is unfolding? Is it giving them the same kinds of things that you, you gave earlier, just in terms of um, pred prediction? Or is it being, uh, can you go into more detail about how you're teaching them to use the metaphor you raised earlier about how to teach them how to fish as opposed to giving them fish to eat? Right, absolutely. So um, I think the primary way in which it differs, the work that I do now from the readings, which I was only offering, is that, I'm now teaching the women on my program how they can access the information that I accessed. So I literally teach them how to, how to meditate, like actual meditation practices, how to connect up to a source of higher guidance, however you want to describe higher, how to understand and receive that guidance and then interpret it, how to trust the self. Like it, it's, it's actually, extremely simple straightforward practices but when put together and consistently practiced in the support of community are completely life-changing so I'm teaching them in effect how to be their own psychic but not just their own psychic I'm teaching them how to be so clear about how to gain access to guidance knowledge information that is i think intrinsic to themselves like you don't whenever i give a reading to somebody even now i'm not pulling this um knowledge or this information out of some sort of bank of you know the existence that has always and will always be no i'm i'm being able to see what it is that they already you know have access to or know I'm getting the information if you like from their higher guidance and so what I'm doing in the program is teaching these women how to do that themselves I'm literally giving them the, the, the tools so it's it's completely different and also you know very aligned very very connected because that ability to connect up and receive information and guidance that means that you can always make always most of the time make the right decision that will lead you to success and happiness is what I was selling to you know Ralph Lauren and Comcast and the WMA like that I they're just not interested in they would rather pay me thousands of pounds to do it than you know spend a year training learning practicing going through the huge personal alchemical changes transformations that are necessary to be able to get access to that information in that crystal clear way um it's fucking hard work you know and so now i'm i'm teaching women and, and non-binary people but predominantly women uh how to how to do that for their own benefit and it and it changes everything that's interesting the the discordance between a certain clientele wanting to 
to basically gain from or exploit your practice, mm -hmm. but without even participating in that practice itself in many ways. I'm thinking a lot of different examples. I won't mention them because it'll take me down a rabbit hole. But I, I, when you were explaining what was going on, I was also thinking of two cliches. Um, one is uh, knowledge is power. And the other one is uh, not really a cliche, but it's a, a more interesting statement from the, the philosopher Immanuel Kant when he said rather cryptically, freedom is a priori. Um, freedom, humans struggle for freedom, but it's actually something that we already have in, to some extent. And I was thinking with women, a lot of cases uh, in, the, in terms of their uh, mistreatment and the kind of bias they encounter from very early on has to do with the limitation of their capabilities. And it's not something that they recognize right away because they grow up in this environment or to use uh, Bourdieu's phrase, this habitus in which the things they, they're doing and they're told to do, they think they're good for them, but actually they're limiting their capacity to see what it is that they can achieve. And so when you were giving an account about how you help women and non-binary people, uh, you're giving them, is it right to say you're giving them this capacity, this power of knowledge to actually not just understand technical things, but to actually see their lives going a different way, right. uh, giving back to them a life perhaps they should have had and in, 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 in current conditions never will have. Absolutely. I think that's the thing. And I, and I feel like, you know, there's, a, there's a, an issue here also about what well, what's a valued knower, right? Like epistemologically, like we are trained to think, okay, that certain knowledge is only valid if it comes from certain sources. And the primary way in which I get this knowledge that I would sell to these Fortune 500 or Fortune 100 companies would be totally unvalued. It's not rational, like ordinarily, but was hugely valuable. And I think that as women, we are literally brought up to be, we are the unvalued knower. We are the, you know, the, the women's knowledge, women's access to knowledge. It's the cycle that just continually just repeats itself and that we internalize and repeat ourselves. That there's only certain ways of accessing knowledge and information, which are two different things, of course, that are valid. And that as women, we, we have second level access to it, secondary access to it, not primary. And so, I mean, we can talk about intuition and, and Aristotle and Hegel endlessly because fucking Hegel, man, he really fucked us with this one. But like, um, you know, I think part of the work that I do is, is trying to show through practice, the women that I work with, how that's not true, right? It's not the case that they're secondary. Um, have secondary access to to knowledge or information or truth and that this fallacy of there being you know rationality and logic as as being the only form of access that is valued and that is you know um accurate is is fucking them up and and it's not it's a fallacy it's not true in my own experience anecdotal experience um being on job hiring panels in my former capacity as head of department with, uh, in philosophy for a university, it was very interesting to see the ways in which different candidates would operate or react to questions in the interview process. And it, it has become a lot better, uh, at least where I was working locally in the United Kingdom in the sense that panels were, uh, and this is largely a result of having a, um, a gender balanced panel, that the recognition of different ways of speaking or, or talking about or responding to questions was, was broadened. So there wasn't just the expectation you had to answer a question a certain way. 
and often in philosophy, the old school approach would be you sort of raise your raise your chest up and you you respond maybe aggressively, but certainly with a lot of certainty and um, you're argumentative. Whereas there's a lot more acceptance or toler tolerance, I guess, probably not the right word, of maybe a, a woman candidate will respond with a narrative. Um, whereas many years ago, that was seen to be the wrong way to do it. Now it's, well, okay, something interesting is going on with this narrative. And it's a different way of my own experience of it, or my view of it, it's a different way of trying to articulate what's significant and meaningful, which different discourses, whether it's the argumentative form or the narrative form, have different strengths and weaknesses to it. And I think it's the job or the responsibility of, the, of whoever the audience is to be able to be aware of that at the very least and be able to work with it. And I, I was also, I, I don't know if you want to respond to that, but I was also, I wanted to come back to intuition um, and just to give a, a few, brief comments on that. So intuition, as you know, is a terribly notorious term in philosophy. Um, for audience members, if, if you're not an academic philosopher, what tends to be the case is whenever someone uses the word intuition, it tends to be in a pejorative sense. So if I have an intuition that something's right, it's something that's not founded. Or if someone accuses you of having an intuition, it means it's not a very well thought out idea. Uh, but intuition doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And, and perhaps looking at the ancient Greek, uh, intuition could be taken from the Greek term nous, uh, which for at least Plato, I'm not quite sure about Aristotle, but for at least Plato was one of the highest ways of, of gaining knowledge. It was kind right. of a direct apprehension of. of so, so Aristotle yeah. describes intuition as an unmediated grasp of something, this unmediation being, a lack of mediation being the key thing. So it's like, you, you know, we can't even conceive of it, of course, it's not possible, which is, you know, how, how, how can, yeah, but that's the translations on mediated grasp. And, and we don't really have a way of talking about that nowadays, do we? Because right. we think that knowledge must be mediated through empirical observation, through deductive or inductive arguments, these kinds of things. Right, and rationality. And we must be able to trace everything back. And then this brings us to, to well, it reminds me of the this, I mean, well, the point at which intuition really gets um, denigrated is, is, is Hegel. And in fact, he, he does it in this like, one line in the preface, I think, to Phenomenology of Spirit, I'm pretty sure, where he, he's, he basically just says, oh, well, it used to be that, that, that um, intuition was the way of knowing of kings, but it's this organic, irrational, un, uh, well, I can't remember the, the, the phrase that he uses, but, but it's now associated with women. It is this organic, structured way of accessing and gaining like there is no way of it being organized or or predicted therefore and it is a lesser a lesser form and of course as soon as you have anything associated with the feminine specifically and the women then it gets bundled you know we go down this whole pathway of all sorts of things being less than weaker but um yeah it's only really since 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 then but i mean because i the ancient greeks I would argue to the end of days that intuition for them was was absolutely not this way in which current contemporary analytic philosophers discuss intuition, as you described, which is just like almost intuition is a shorthand for like laziness almost. Like you don't, if you don't want to like uh, explain where you got to or why you came to this conclusion, it's just an intuitive grasp. But that's not what the at all what the Greeks understood as it was. I hate using words like pure because it's so. Um, but but 
and this is the problem it it was just a, a sort of direct unmediated unmediated getting it not um you know just sort of like a like a sort of vaseline on the lens of your thinking as it's used now that's a great metaphor vaseline on the lens i'm th sorry just thought of star trek because that's when they do the fuzzy romantic lens whenever they would show a handsome female that kirk was going to uh, oh really i didn't know this i gotta check that out well it's that point in the podcast where we take a break and hear from our sponsors so we'll be back in just a few moments are you unhappy with your academic career do you need help transitioning to the next chapter? Hillary Hutchinson is a career coach specializing in helping academics leave academia. Academia is an unusual place with extremely rigid standards for promotion and due to structural issues with severely limited opportunities. The decision to leave academia can happen at any time in an academic career, whether just graduating with a PhD, deciding mid-career that the academic lifestyle or work content no longer appeals, or even figuring out what to do on retiring after a long academic career. Contact her at transitioningyourlife.com or call 843-225-3224 to set up a complimentary appointment and find out more about how she works with clients. Living Philosophy is brought to you by philosophytoyou.com. If you're interested in organizational improvement in view of meaningful work, virtues, compassion, and self-development, contact philosophytoyou.com to get the process of transformation and innovation underway. We can help identify your goals and how to achieve them based on your organizational strengths and potential. We can also provide staff seminars for learning and development that promote group dynamics, group learning, and not just mere instruction. Let's start embracing life in the workplace. Visit us at www.philosophy, the number two, the letter U.com. And now, back to our show. And I was thinking in relation to the ancient Greeks, I'm a bit of a romantic when it comes to the ancient Greeks, and, and this is largely because I disdain the ancient Greek philosophy because I encountered it originally or first through a lot of old analytic philosophy, which a lot of good analytic philosophy has moved on from this way of looking at ancient Greek philosophy like um, Alistair McIntyre and Martha Nussbaum and Julia Annis and Rosalind Hursthouse. Ancient Greek philosophy was revived for me when I came on to Heidegger and which is notorious because Heidegger has a very, uh, to put it uh, politely, idiosyncratic way of reading historical sources. <laughs> but I think what Heidegger nonetheless touched on, which I think is right, is that the ancient Greeks had this way of understanding the relationship to reality that modern philosophers didn't have. And, and that was simply, uh, for modern philosophy, most philosophers, there is a break between our relationship, our own experience and subjectivity with, with the external world. And for the ancient Greeks, they just didn't talk about the external world. So you have this way of Heidegger would say that reality or the cosmos was disclosing itself to us. And I think that allows for the kind of direct intuition to be, to, to be placed in a much more uh, respectable role as it were than, than for the modern philosopher. And I suppose, I mean, I guess indirectly we're talking about uh, psychic forms of grasping what's going on is this intuitive way of, of understanding what's being disclosed. But to go back to practices, are there any, like meditation practices, are there any specific techniques that you yourself find yourself engaging in to help with that intuitive relationship? You don't have to reveal um, your secrets, but I'm, I'm curious. I know, it's all right. I don't, the, the, the thing is, they're not really secrets. They're just sort of, you know, foundational, quite basic practices of 
um, that are now hugely popular and there's all sorts of apps for them. But um, yes, absolutely. The, the primary one being focusing on being itself, mindfulness otherwise known as, you know, just really training the self and training the mind to be absolutely present. And how I teach my students to do that is focusing on the, on the breath. I mean, it's not new, it's really not new. Um, but, I, but I think, you know, having access to these practices is one thing, but it becomes much more valuable, I think, to have a community of other people that are also living in the real world. So, so one of the distinctions that I like, I don't know about like to make, but something that's always struck me about the general understanding of somebody that considers themselves to be spiritual or a spiritual teacher or a mystic, which of course is, this is directly connected to my PhD research, is that when we look at the history and the literature around mysticisms and mysticism and, and mystics as individuals, they fall into two categories. They're active or they're passive con consistently, or they're categorized as such as to whether they are or not is a different question, of course. And this idea of the, of the of true high connection to the divine and um, connection to, to, to true knowledge is always associated with this passive form of mysticism whereby you know you basically remove yourself from the mundanity of the world the material world which is this lesser um thing and go and live in a mountain and just meditate all the time and that's how you achieve enlightenment and that's how you access true knowledge which always struck me as well bullshit for a start but also it's incredibly located within a, an, a, a very specific nexus of oppressions, right? Like who can actually ever afford to do that? Well, it's certainly not like people that are working in fucking Walmart to pay their bills barely. Uh, and, and I think this is really important. So when it comes to, you know, teaching practices for, for women specifically that are living in this material world, I think that it, it's not enough to just say, okay, you need to meditate every day, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day, that's, that, that'll sort you out. Well, it's going to radically improve a lot of things if one is able to do that. But you also need, one also needs to be hugely mindful and, and to center, I think, the lived reality of these women's lives. You know, my students have businesses, they have children, they have partners, they have chronic illnesses, they are, you know, what, we are human, we're living in a, a sort of material capitalist world which requires very particular performances from us all. And so it's not, I suppose my point always is, it's not just about teaching practices and it can be so glib and easy to say, Oh, I teach women these spiritual practices. They're kind of secret, you know. Most people, most most of these haven't been, you know, shared outside of initiates of ancient spiritual traditions. All of which is true, but like that's not the gold here. The gold is that you have these practices. I, I will share these practices with you. I will teach them to you. But you are also in community with other people, and and a community that explicitly create space, make space for the, the, the grim reality of your life or the brilliant reality of your life, whatever. But it's it's not this isolated sort of, you know, as, as this is the problem I have with most of the sort of quote, new age, spiritual self-development, TikTok, Instagram world is it's, it's, it's still associating achievement with this 
non-material, um, you know, everything's white, literally and figuratively, um, you know, separate separation from money, sex, food, you know, physicality, things. I, 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 I can't bear it. And it's also just as far away from the divine as you can find, in my opinion. So was much of your PhD then focused on um, a kind of gene genealogical critical exercise of finding what was interesting about historical sources accounting for things like mystical experience, but then locating or talking about the ways in which this has been, their, this account or their account had been conditioned by different socioeconomic factors. I'm thinking of when you were speaking, I was also reminded of, of when Buddhism, at least in my experience, became very popular in the West. It was popular in the West prior to me, but growing up in Berkeley or going to school at university in Berkeley during the 1990s, obviously there's this wave of interest in Buddhism and it, it had a very particular conception of what Buddhism was about. It was supposed to be very egalitarian. It was supposed to be very democratic and open-minded and sort of maybe difficult in practice, but in the end, it was kind of warm and embracing. And my understanding of certain aspects of Buddhism, especially Theravada Buddhism, is it's very strict, very hierarchical, right. and a lot of crazy, weird uh, power relationships emerge as a result of that. And um, so can you say more about what your PhD thesis exposed? The first thing to say is I started, like every person that's ever done a PhD, I started with PhD idea A and ended up writing PhD 74, you know, like it was just like a different language, different topic, like totally almost extremely unrelated. But of course, I couldn't have finished written the PhD that I did if I hadn't have started where I was that great paradox. But um, so my initial concern was really, truly quite selfish. I wanted to do a PhD because I wanted to understand philosophically how and why I was probably like everybody, the sort of self-obsession. But for me, it was a genuinely urgent question because I could not comprehend or square or understand how I could be experiencing the world in the way that I do. And I couldn't rationalize it. And I was still really struggling to, I want, I thought like a fool that philosophy would allow me, would give me the tools or somewhere would be the answer to the, the, the question, which is, you know, oh dear. Um, and of course that, that is part of the problem of academia and, and all sorts of things that there is this idea still so endemic that knowledge is just there to be discovered, just there, you know, if you just answer the, ask the right question, you will get an answer, which I, I absolutely fundamentally disagree with the concept of how the universe works. It's crazy to me. Um, but I started the PhD thinking, okay, I need to work out and understand what these experiences are that I have, have had, and continue to have within a, a, an academic framework, within a philosophical framework, I need to understand them. And even if I was prepared for it to be the case that those experiences might be considered mystical experiences and, you know, um, relegated to the, 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 the sort of weird theology, you know, less rigorous uh, bit of, of academic work. Um, but what I didn't expect, I suppose, was to realize that the whole construction of knowledge itself is 
you know, at, at play in every single engagement any of us ever have, of course. And it seems really obvious now you sort of literally say it like that. But when it comes to discussing and understanding and trying to process and, and make meaning from um, mystical experiences, for example, um, which is what I was trying to do, it, it becomes the central theme, power and 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 valid knowing becomes the only theme. And so the PhD in the end was a discussion, a, a critical engagement with the way in which the Roman Catholic Church and specifically the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is a department within the Vatican or within the Holy See, um, engages in the past and to this day with women who claim to receive direct communication from God. So it was really a sort of historical look at the way in which these particular female mystics have been treated and, and how their narratives, their words themselves, as well as their experiences, and then the construct of their characters after they had died, were brought into the machine that is the, the perpetuation of the Catholic Church as a, as a you know, organization stroke business and so it, yes it basically how how women's knowledge and the way in which um particularly knowledge that was outside of the realms of what was considered valid was utilized to maintain control that sounds very interesting is it something you're you've published or thinking about publishing it sounds like it, it would be a very interesting historical critical exercise or is the experience you had at oxford university just too off-putting and traumatic. I'm, I'm saying that with some humor, but I've spent time at Oxford and um, although it is considered one of the bastions of knowledge, whatever that might mean, I've always been very disappointed with my engagements in uh, philosophy there. Uh, probably if anyone's from Oxford University and um, hearing this, they're probably already placing me on a lower rung than I already was in the philosophical <laughs> world. But um, there you have it. My experience of a lot of the seminars in my area of philosophy just tended to be a lot of postgraduates I happen to be American, wanting to impress people within the seminar room with their knowledge. And the classic, uh, the classic uh, segue was, I have a very short question, which would lead into a 10 minute commentary <laughs> why they, you know, the demonstration of knowledge of, of you know, in their, their research. But is it, is the work, your PhD, something you want to return to in any way, or is that just, it was one step you took that you needed to take, and now you're, you're ready to move on for your own uh, well-being as it were. Yeah I mean Oxford nearly killed me like literally nearly killed me and the philosophical environment there was utterly toxic and I cannot believe that it's changed very much. Um, I mean it, it's sort of horror story. I mean so many people so many people literally killed themselves while I was at Oxford and I, I people are always so shocked that you should look up the statistics of suicide at Oxford. I mean it's truly truly shocking and it has nothing to do with academic or intellectual rigor and that's the first thing to really know is that you know what makes Oxford not great um, or beyond not great actively harmful is that it is concerned more than anything else with maintaining its position of power and specifically of maintaining particularly validated voices i.e like they have a very clear idea of who are valid knowers and those people are definitely not women and they're certainly white so if you're if you are not a, a, a cis white 
man, you're fucked, basically. You, you sort of run, you know, hit the ground already pretty, you know, disabled by, by those things. And so in terms of my research, I mean, I am incredibly proud of the work that I have done, but academically, and I have a, a couple of articles published, chapters in books, you know, all the sort of things that we as academics are told like, oh, important, you, they're more important than anything. Um, but it just does not interest me. Like it's my desire, lack of desire to publish my PhD comes not from PTSD, although I definitely have that, but more just who is going to be engaging with these thoughts because they're not the people I give a fuck about. Like truly, I do. I couldn't care less about what philosophers in Oxford think about my thoughts because philosophers in Oxford are not concerned with thinking. They're not concerned with thought at all. So I, I yeah, I, I feel like the power and the value in that work that I did was absolutely personal, but also absolutely foundational to the work that I am doing now, which I adore and I see having huge impact that does make change that does empower people that does allow liberative ways of engaging with the world in in a way that you know honestly I think most most academic work does not it is not about thought it's not about liberation it's not about empowerment it is ultimately about class replication I think so no, I'm not going to publish my PhD unless, you know, I could ever be bothered to maybe rewrite it in a way that made it accessible, more accessible to people that were not academics. But I doubt I'm going to have the, I could be bothered, to be honest. I feel like, yeah, no. It's, it's available to read. Anyone wants to read it, it's in the Bodleian. Uh, I, every, every so often I get an email from someone saying, um, oh, I read your PhD. I mean, truly this happens, Todd. You will maybe not believe it because nobody reads anyone's fucking PhD, right? Um, but I get these I get these very enthusiastic emails from um, clients of mine or students of mine that have, have hunted it down. And I'm like, did I write that? I don't remember. You know, this is like, it's like another life. Do you think there's any way in which academic institutions like Oxford, Cambridge, and it's probably Yale and Harvard and a lot of these mm. uh, can change this power dynamic. And do you think that other universities, I mean, I want to say the universities I worked at were much more egalitarian and open-minded about what academia was and what mattered, uh, but I might be wrong there, but on the, on the grand scheme of things, if places like Oxford and Cambridge are going to be seen as the beacons of, of higher education, do you think they can seriously change? Do you think the pandemic and the emphasis on remote teaching and learning is can, 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 can contribute to any kind of transformation? Or is it just, you don't want to, you just don't want to waste any more time with this and, and let's uh, move on to another question. I, 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 it's, I, think, I think they can do anything they want. They just will not want to. What's the incentive? Why would these, you know, like uh, we look at Oxford as a great example. I mean, it's not like I wasn't aware of this when I applied, but like so many people, like we've all been there where you're seduced by this thought of, you know, I certainly was absolutely seduced by this thought of a community and a space where thinking is validated and 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 high held in high regard and prioritized above all else. And, you know, all this sort of, you know, like the, the sort of Harry Potter version of what one thinks Oxford might be when, when one applies and probably for the first six months of my experience there. But the reality is and has always been one. It's just like, you know, I'm hugely anti-police and have been for, for 
for so many years, we need to look back at these institutions at their very founding, you know, times. Like, why was Oxford created? Why? What, what are the origins of Oxford? What are the origins of the police? What's the origins of these things? It's they'll never change because that's their whole they're doing extremely well at what they're meant to be doing which is to say to uphold a specific colonial um patriarchal capitalist now um structure of power they've got absolutely no intention of changing and so any shifts or changes that we may see will absolutely be lip surface and completely on the surface so, you know, people ask this a lot, a lot, would I advise, you know, women that are wanting to apply to Oxford, do I suggest that they go there? No, don't fucking go. The, uh, I mean, for so many reasons, but, but most of all, you're almost guaranteed to be deeply traumatized in some significant way. But, but also for as long as we are, and by we, I mean like the wider academic community saying that Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard or Yale are, are like these, we're heralding them as the bastions of good academic practice. We're, you know, we are the problem. We're not part of it. We actually are the bloody problem. So, no. I mean, I, I think in academia, as in a, in general, is not the place where thought happens. You know this. Everybody that's ever been in academia knows that's not where thought happens. It is incidental. Academia is a marketplace. It is a commodity pro producer of class, replication of class, replication of workers. Like. It just really is. It shouldn't be. But then what's the origin of, of the universities? Like, where are we? We need to find other locations for true thought to happen. And it sure as hell is not going to be Oxford University. Yes, there seems to be um, the other aspect of capitalism that, that um, Max Weber touched on was managerialism. I was just thinking of a lot of different experiences where, uh, from a PhD student's perspective, as a tenured academic, you're living the dream because you're in a department, you have job security, and you're with colleagues. And if you're lucky, you're in a department where everyone gets along despite their philosophical differences. And I actually was very lucky, both departments I was in, that was absolutely the case. But you never had time to actually get to know your colleagues at that intellectual level. And most of your time was spent dealing with problems, administrative problems or pressures being put on by the university. And it's not till you do things that um, you just do serendipitously or they, they arise out of an impromptu need uh, where you get together with colleagues and a question arises and you start pursuing that, that you realize, why can't we do this more often? Why can't we have right. uh, these kinds of uh, discussions, you know, very brief, they're not long, they're, they don't take a two hour seminar, it's just questions raise, people respond, then they explore it on their own. But you're right, it, it's very difficult for that to happen in the institution. I, I worked, I had a job, I had an academic job and taught for for one, for a full year and was employed as a, as a lecturer. And everything that you describe happened. The most sinister thing about the whole phenomena, not just that the, the, the focus was always constantly on keeping the students happy because they were paying the bills, this is a very important thing. Of course, they're, they're, they're like, you know, the, the people that are bringing the money in and money is God in, in this system. But there was not only an absolute lack of time and space to be actually doing thinking, right? Like that just can't happen if you have an academic job. You can't, you, when the hell do you get to think? But this collaborative communal engagement was actively, actively crushed in large part by the physical planning 
of the university space itself. So, you know, that they're, they're, common rooms, is there a university common room? Like, no, this idea of the collegial like university, like we have at Oxford or, 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 or Cambridge is so unique and seems to be considered to be like this exciting, wondrous thing. Why primarily? Because of this idea of the communal, the senior common room, this com like the university that I was at absolutely was not, uh, at, <laughs> was not a, 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 a Oxbridge University and there was not one place to get our coffee other than the literal cafeteria so academics we would huddle around these fucking tables next to our students just trying to build community and this was an active and intentional choice on the behalf of the of the institution I mean it I, it's none of this is coincidental it is a fundamental part of the, the the process and, it, and thinking doesn't happen in academia thinking happens only outside you once you have escaped it and to bring it back to capitalism we we don't have enough time to go into capitalism maybe i'll have to do a follow-up podcast with you on your thoughts as an entrepreneur about um, problems with the capitalist system sure. what that is uh, what we mean by capitalism um and and because you're you're a successful entrepreneur it might be very interesting to have a different take on that um, but just to bring it back to capitalism what's what stifles the ability to create spaces within the university on my experience, and this is gonna be my own uh, peeve, um, is that the university acts as a landlord. So uh, it rents out its space to its own employees yeah. or departments, and they have to justify, uh, they either have to justify why that's that's gonna be a cost or they have to pay for the cost up front as a form of rent. So it becomes difficult. The rationale provide a space in which there is no way of ga gaining money from it. It's just there for communal discussion whenever it might arise, it's very difficult to um, put forward in that kind of man managerial system. Mm -hmm. uh, very aggravating from my, my perspective. I think we need a revolution for a start, but I think we need a revolution specifically of intellectuals and academics, like all the, all the brilliant people that have excitement and interest and, and engagement, they want to engage in thought. We, we, it's almost like this honey trap, you know, we've all been corralled into academia. It's like the, 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 this incredible, you know, oh, it's reminding me of, um, you know, Lewis Carroll, is it Lewis Carroll, the um, Alice in Wonderland, where like the oysters are like, you know, being sort of led into the open wide mouth of the walrus. Like this is academia, these are intellectuals, these are the people that we need to be out of academia. We're, they're all stuck, like chewed up by this machine. And so this is why there is such a, a need, I think, for like true revolutionary thinking. We have to get out of this idea that academia has ever offered, at least for the last hundred years, any space for true thought. This crazy idea that if you're an intellectual and you want to spend your life thinking and writing, that you should be an academic. That's absolutely the last fucking thing you should do. You need to work out a way to bring money in as efficiently as possible so that you're not exchanging your time for your money as much as you can, and then create space in your life to think and to talk and to engage. Like academia, you're the oyster marching into the walrus. I think in an earlier, if I recall correctly, in an earlier interview, you said that um, many, many years ago, you, uh, you just understood as an entrepreneur that things were going to be online and that was it. And mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a friend and colleague who is very successful. And I remember him remarking um, about similar things about how he was, how he thinks about changing business models. And um, he's been very good at that and, and has reaped the rewards of that forward way of thinking. 
And I was hoping, and I sort of am still hoping that the pressure that the pandemic has put on where the universities can no longer rely on a, on a conventional traditional structure of dissemination of education, to put it crassly, will change the way in which they think about what it means to have teaching and seminar discussion and so forth. But the worry is that whatever innovation arises will be co-opted by whatever we might want to call it, the capitalist or managerial machine. And I think maybe as a lot of interesting things do happen, uh, it, that change occurs at the fringe and it has ripple effects. And so one of, one of the ideas with these podcasts is to provide a different way for a larger audience to engage with meaningful topics and, and be transformed. Right, I them. love this. This is, I think, where the real thinking happens. And we need to find ways, communities that, that can, because it's important to not only have the insights, but have um, a community of, of people you can discuss it with. And I suppose that's what, in your own work as, as mentor, um, you deal one-on-one -on -one with clients, but do you ever have group workshops, as it were, where your clients come it's together? All, in fact, it's all groups. So this is the this is the big shift. And so everything you've described and, and that I've just been talking about is precisely what I've created. And I love it so much. So we, it is precisely for those reasons, my, my, my intention and what I've managed to do is create a, a community that is all entirely online, entirely online and yet extremely safe, powerful, tight space um, where all of ev everything that one experiences and goes through and engages with when going through the spiritual practices that I teach is available to, for discussion and engagement and critical thought is centered for me and for, for all of my students like I, it and this is I think one of the things that marks it out from so many um you know year-long spiritual practice you know uh, mentorships or, or whatever is that I'm not afraid to I want my students to think like I teach once a week in a group so so in a way sort of model is very similar to the sem to a, to a lecture and seminar structure so it's all over zoom um, I have 35 students at the moment um, and maybe 15 or 20 of them will turn up at, at, at once at the week um, and I'll teach for 45 minutes on a topic and then we open it up to discussion and these topics can range from you know li literally protective candle magic all the way through to teaching them about the the um, scientific method and the origins of the scientific method um, you know so so broadly there's nothing that's not discussed because not just you can't just give people information or tell them about certain things that is not where learning occurs. Learning occurs in conversation, in engagement, in going away, thinking about something, coming back, engaging again, this sort of cyclical process, communal process. So absolutely, group work is, is actually the foundation of, of how I teach and, and how people make these shifts that are really radical for themselves. Is there any one philosopher or philosophy that you found particularly helpful and inspiring? Um, big question really um i would I'll, I'll answer this this is the the person that i'm reading at the moment that i find the most useful and inspiring and interesting is lisa baretza do you know her she's a philosopher of time um and she her book enduring time is so excellent i'm really interested in the philosophy of time it's always been something that's fascinated me but she's particularly interesting because she's coming to this very kind of how to put it 
quite staid part of analytic philosophy. You know, philosophy of time is really is, is, is pretty solid and conservative and she's looking at this through the lens of post-colonialism and specifically through the lens of women's experience and women's work. So there is a real focus on trying to articulate a way of, I suppose the phenomenology of caring, the phenomenology of existence. And this book was published, I think three years ago. So it's not new, particularly fascinating now as we are all suddenly having this kind of collective experience of time as non-linear, time as seemingly stretching. Uh, it's not something that has a clear beginning and end, things blur together. And this is literally what she, she writes about. I, I find her very exciting and interesting. As we come to the end of our podcast, Kate, do you have any parting words of wisdom for our audience? Don't go into academia if you want to think. <laughs> I mean, truly. And, and um, in a less glib way, I would say prioritize finding a community of people that you can discuss things with without the need to be correct or right. And I think this is such an important thing. Part of what makes academia and certainly the Oxford philosophy model so harmful and so toxic is that, as you said, Todd, it's just a collection of men trying to like out correct themselves, you know, to be seen as correct, to be seen as right. And that's the opposite of what philosophy should be, as far as I'm concerned. And certainly it's the opposite of thought. So find a community, even if that community is just two people that you can like have WhatsApp voice message exchanges with, find your community of people that allow you to talk things through, to think things through and change your position. Thank you, Kate Thomas. It has been excellent talking to you. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope to continue aspects of this conversation at some later podcast. But in the meanwhile, I wish you all the luck with your endeavors as mentor for women and non-binary people. Thank you so much. It's been such a, a joy. Thanks, Todd. For more on Kate's work in mentoring, please visit her website at drkatethomas.com or reach out to her on Instagram at katethomasphd. Please see the podcast blurb for the links and addresses. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share and subscribe. My name is Dr. Todd May. Thank you for joining us on Living Philosophy, and I hope you'll join us for our next podcast episode. Until then, don't just read philosophy, live philosophically. <laughs>